you. He publicly, openly, boldly prayed and said, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this sinner. And what did the publican do? He stood off in the corner beating his chest with his head down, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus is the only one who has the right, the access, the sinlessness and the purity to raise his eyes and, and as it were, cut through the realms between this world and, and heaven and look at the Father in his face and speak directly to him. No one can do that but Jesus. And he says, Father, the hour has come. He has nothing to be ashamed of. He's finished his assignment. He's obeyed every command of the Father. He's listened to everything he was supposed to listen to, and he's done everything he is supposed to done. He's not failed at any task. He's not misspoken any word. He's not had a stray thought out of line with the holy character of his Father. And so he boldly and shamelessly lifts his eyes to heaven and says, Father. And then look at how he prays in verse 1. What he asks for is, is something that no other created being could ever ask for. I don't mean other created being like Jesus was a created being. I mean any other being that has been created by Jesus. We could not ask for these things. No angel, not even the highest of angels, not even Michael himself, the, the archangel, entrusted with some of the most precious tasks of, of God's plan and purposes in human history. Not even he could say what Jesus here says. This is a unique man making a unique Request. He asked the Father to glorify him so that he may glorify the Father. The basis of that prayer, as he goes on to say, is that you, Lord, have sent me, you, Father, have sent me into this world to do your work. You've given me all authority over all flesh, namely so that I might save those that you have given to me, Jesus says. So Jesus is, is obviously no ordinary man, right? You're with me on this? He's a unique man on a unique mission with a unique prayer. In verse 3, his uniqueness is seen again in that he defines the essence of eternal life as that of knowing God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. Just think about him saying that. Think about what he's communicating about himself by how he words that in verse 3. That the essence of eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He is in that statement raising himself. He does not need raise. He's clearly identifying that he is in this position of, of co-equality, of co-eternality, that he is God in the flesh. He furthers that thought in verse 4 when he says that he came into the world and glorified the Father by doing the very thing he was sent to do. So here's Jesus in this unique relationship to the Father in heaven with this mission he was sent to do, and now he expresses perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And this all then comes to this explosive conclusion in the statement in verse 5. Look at what he says. And now, Father, glorify me, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You want to talk about a theologically pregnant statement. This is why Thomas Manton preached 45 sermons on John 17. Because of verses like verse 5. It's filled with truth. He's asking for the Father to glorify him in the presence of the Father. 
Literally, he's saying, glorify me from beside yourself or, or by yourself, next to you. And yet, he's asking to be glorified with a glory that he says, I already had with you before the world existed. So just step back from the verse, think critically about what he's saying. What's he asking? He's asking the Father to glorify him in the Father's presence with a glory Jesus previously had. He's saying, return me to that glory. And the timing of that previous glory is not a a time in human history previous, but it's before the world ever existed, before one molecule of creation was ever spoken into existence. Jesus says, return me to that shared glory between you, Father, and me, Son. So, again, critically think, what is that saying about Jesus? Is he not indisputably identifying himself as of one essence with the Father? That he is of one being with the Father, that he shares the Father's deity, and therefore his glory. That he, the Son, is God, and that the Father is God. Do you remember in the prophet Isaiah, I know it's probably been a while since you've read there, or maybe you're close to there in your Bible reading plan. Remember in the prophet Isaiah when he's speaking about the glory of the Lord, and the Lord is speaking to his people through the prophet? 42 verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. In case they missed it, he comes back to it in chapter 48, and he says, for my own sake, for my own sake I'd do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give, I will not give to another. Here's Jesus saying, I shared glory with you. Beloved, if he is not God in the flesh. If he is not of one essence and being with God, then he is blasphemous and deserved to die on that cross. But he is here agreeing with what John said in his prologue in chapter 1. You remember, I know it's been many sermons ago, and you've slept since then, but do you remember what John says in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Being and essence, same as God. You remember how he finishes the prologue? That's the beginning of the prologue, verse 1. You remember how he finishes the prologue? Uh, the word has, has been enfleshed so that he can make God known. No one has ever seen God, John says. The only God who is at the Father's side, literally face to face with the Father, He has made him known. Literally, he has exegeted him. He's made him known to us. You know what Jesus is saying in John 17? I agree with John the Apostle of John 1. He got it right. I was with the Father before ever one word of creation was spoken, and I shared that glory. Now he is praying to the Father and says, Lord, glorify me so that you will be glorified and Glorify me with the glory I once had with you. So what really is Jesus asking for? Well, remember, it's a unique moment. He's staring down the realities of the cross, coming out of the upper room, marching to Calvary. He'll stop on the way in Gethsemane, 
sweat drops of blood as he anticipates the agony of the weight of your sinfulness and mine weighing upon his soul. But then he'll march headlong with his face like flint to Calvary's cross, enduring suffering and shame and mockery, pulling of his beard and spitting on his face, public decrying of him as blasphemous, as worthy of death, a crowd shouting out in unison, put him to death, put him to death, execute him, execute him. He will stand resolved and committed going to the cross for you and for me. And as he looks down the tunnel of that suffering, he is praying to the Father that God, his Father, would sustain him and finish his work through him. That it would be accomplished as they have agreed in eternity past, it would be accomplished. And that through it, God would be glorified, and through that, the Son would be glorified. And the work would be done. This is a unique prayer in a unique moment offered by a unique man. And he was sent on a unique mission. That's in verses 2 through 4. He was sent from the Father on a mission to secure our redemption from sin, which ultimately glorifies God as he saves sinners and makes them his people. And by completing that mission, Jesus is saying, I will glorify God. And through the completing of that mission, the Son will be glorified. So this hour that has now come upon him is an hour of glory, right? And Jesus doesn't go to the hour of glory with despondency and despair and frustration and wringing of his hands, wishing that this had worked out some other way. He goes to the cross. He enters into this hour of, of darkness and suffering with hope with confidence, with resolve, so much resolve that he prays. And he says to the Father, glorify me so that you too will be glorified through the work. So the question you should have on your mind is how is it that the Father and the Son are are magnified through this work? I just want to point out several things to you about this unique mission that glorify God through its completion. Notice in verse 4 that Jesus speaks of the work as though it was already accomplished. He talks about it. He says, I've already done what you've sent me to do. I, I glorified you, past tense, on earth, having accomplished, past tense, the work that you gave me to do. Well, he has something yet to do, right? The hardest part, actually, of, of his work is laying ahead of him, but yet it is as done in the mind of God. It is like the prophets, namely like Psalm 22, when you read of of the psalmist writing prophetic text about the coming Messiah. He speaks of him as though it is already accomplished. He, He speaks of it as his context pointing ahead as though it's already done. That's the same thing Jesus says here. In human history, it has to play out, but in the mind of God, it is accomplished as Jesus goes to the cross. Notice also that this unique man on this unique mission has been given unique authority over all flesh. He's been given that authority to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given to him. I know that's a mouthful, but pull it apart in your mind. He's coming to accomplish eternal life and to give eternal life for those whom the Father has given to him. In other words, to just make it as simple as possible, this is not a haphazard mission. This is not Jesus like Rambo jumping out of some 
military, military helicopter behind enemy lines with a hope, a prayer, and a machine gun that it all works out. Just jumping in, and, and man, I just, boy, see you later, Jesus. Hope it works out for you. No, this is him coming with a purpose, a plan, and a mission, knowing how it's going to go, sent into the world by the Father to secure eternal life for all those whom the Father had given to him. That phrase, all those whom you have given him, Jesus says in verse 2, is, is repetitive throughout the prayer of Jesus in John 17. And Jesus has this, this people who've been given to him by the Father uniquely on his heart and mind as he heads to Calvary. He's thinking about them as he goes to work for them. So in verse 6, he's going to say that he has manifested the Father's name to those whom the Father has given him out of the world. He says that they were the Father's and he's given them to the Son and the proof that they are the Son's is that they've kept the Son's word. And in verse 9, he's going to say that he's praying for these, not, not the ones in the world, he says, but the ones who've been given to him by the Father because they are the Father's people. And then in verse 12, he's going to say that he has kept them and guarded them. Well, who has he kept and guarded? He's kept and guarded those who the Father has given to him. And he is confident they will be kept for all eternity. Then down in verse 24, he prays that those whom the Father has given him will be with the Son in glory. Why? So that they can see the glory that Jesus has with the Father. And know that the Father loved the Son from before the foundation of the world. What he's praying for in verse 24 is the, the culmination of this whole thing. This whole work of redemption. This is the end result of redemptive history. This is God with a plan from before the foundation of the world. Sending his Son to accomplish the plan. And this is Jesus praying in the midst of the working out of that plan. Father, make sure they make it to the end. Those ones you gave me out of the world, make sure they're there when we, together with your people, share our glory with them so that they can see how much you loved me from before the foundation of the world. You see, it all is about the glory of God, the exaltation of God, the bigness and greatness and majesty of God displayed through the work of the Son, the rescuing of his people and their eternal life in him. He prays here at the beginning of his prayer this way. He includes it as part of his unique mission to give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given him. He already said that in John 3. Do you remember that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only Son. That whoever believe in him may have eternal life. That's why he came, right? To give eternal life. He came to accomplish and to give it to those. John 6, 37, we've covered these verses, but I remind you, Jesus says in that verse that all the, that which the Father has given to him will indeed come to him in faith because the Father will draw them to Jesus. Then two verses later in verse 39, Jesus affirms that he will not lose any of those whom the Father has given to him to save. Then he comes back to that idea in chapter 10, and he says in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 29, that you're secure not just by my grasp of you, but by the Father's grip of you. 
He says, no one's greater than my father. He's greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. Who's the them? Well, those who the father has given to the son. So, beloved, Jesus is on a unique mission, a well-defined mission to give eternal life to those whom the father has given to the son. Then notice in verse 3 that the eternal life is defined. So what exactly is it that the son is accomplishing for those that have been given to him by the father? Is it just that you're going to live forever? Some days when life's going well, that's a pretty neat idea, right? This is a good life. I'd like to do this forever. Other days, you're like, you're kidding, right? I have to do this forever? You have those days, right? It's not just me. Is that what this is? Is this a promise that life just keeps going? With a little sanctification mixed in, it gets better, but it's just, it's just ongoing life. No, Jesus helps you here. He defines the essence of eternal life. And in, in essence, he flips it on its head. Because when we think of eternal life, we, we put the eternal before the life in our minds. It's ongoing and unending, when in reality, the life should be first, because life is found in the knowledge of God. See, eternal life is, is actually more about knowing the eternal one than it is about having ongoing life. It's because you, through Jesus, get to know the eternal God. You are given eternal life with him. And so eternal life, all the blessings of eternal life flow downstream from knowing God. And this knowing of God, you know, is not just knowing facts, not just comprehending that that God is this and God is that, or God said this and God said that, or or I shouldn't do this because God said. It's more than a knowledge like that. I knew facts about J.J. Jasper before this weekend. I had heard him on the radio. I had heard stories about him from Jake. But I didn't really get to know J.J. until I went to lunch with him and talked to him for an hour and a half and listened to his personal stories and asked personal questions. We got to know each other better. It was beyond factual. It was relational. So now there's a, a friendship between me and him because of that time spent and that knowledge shared, relational knowledge. And when John's gospel speaks of eternal life, it's always in terms of relationship. It's always in terms of of knowing God beyond facts. You certainly have to know and affirm facts about God, right? But it's beyond that. It's, It's being rescued from your sin, which has alienated you from God, and being brought near to God through his Son so that you can know God and be known actually by him. This is why back in chapter 5, when Jesus confronted the Jewish leaders, and these are the guys who... If anyone knew God in Jesus' day, it was these guys, right? They knew the scriptures. They knew the law. They knew the the fences they had put up around the law. So you don't go past those fences, and then you certainly won't break the law. I mean, these were the the Jews of the Jews. And Jesus confronts them. He says, listen, you don't know me. Therefore, you will die in your sins. And and that whole passage turns on the dime in chapter 5 of knowing God through his son. If you don't know God through his son, you will die in your sins, Jesus says. Here in the prayer in John 17, he, however, is on the flip side rejoicing that this work of redemption is accomplishing eternal life for sinners saved by grace. 
The essence of that life is that they know the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. Verse 25, Jesus will say that the world does not know the Father, but Jesus knows him. And those that the Father has sent to Jesus also know the Father. It's interesting to read John's epistles, his letters, after you have studied the gospel. You start reading the epistles in a different light because you understand the thoughts of John laid out in his gospel better. In, John, in 1 John 5, verse 20, he, this is the second to last verse before he ends his letter. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. That's the knowledge of God. So that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Does that sound familiar? That's John 17, 3, carried over into 1 John 5 and verse 20 and spelled out with greater detail. This is a true knowledge of the true God, and in this you have eternal life. No wonder the prophet Jeremiah tells us in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, that you shouldn't boast in riches. Don't let the rich man boast in his riches. riches. Don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Don't let the strong man boast in his strength. You remember this text? But let... You boast in this, that you know me, the one true God. No wonder the new covenant described in Jeremiah 31 has as an essential part of it that you will know God. You will not need anyone to teach you about God any longer, but you will know the one true God. No wonder Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that he has been made a new covenant minister by the power of the Spirit because he then proclaims Christ Jesus as God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's whole message was to know Christ and him crucified, to preach him so that others may know him. No wonder Paul says, as he faces the reality of prison walls and deterrence to the gospel spreading, he says, I count all things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. There's a surpassing worth in the mind and heart of Paul to knowing God through his son, the Lord Jesus. John relates to us the words of Jesus in which we know this is eternal life. And just think of the context of this statement. This is a a context, John 17, of of great rejection by the masses, right? Jesus is is steeled away in a hidden room where the authorities don't know where he is because if they knew where he was, they would have already come and snatched him. He's hiding away with his disciples, stealing away a few more minutes with them to pour into them his truth. And he's about to go face their vitriol and their hatred as he heads toward the cross. In essence, they will say, we don't believe you. We don't think you're the one sent from God, and because we don't believe you, you should die on that Roman execution stake. And here in this upper room, he has this unique group of 11 men who believe him, who stake their life and eternity on Jesus being true. And he prays and thanks the Father for them. And he assumes his role as their great high priest. And he asks the Father to accomplish the very things that the Father said he will accomplish. 
He prays in line with the, the Father and the Son's mission worked out in eternity past. And the outcome of that mission is the glory of Christ seen in souls saved, added to the church, eternally made his own. A good question at this point to give you a mental break is how is it that God is glorified through the cross of Jesus Christ? That's what Jesus is praying here, right? Glorify the Son so that you also will receive glory. You've given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those whom you have given to me. How is it that Jesus and God are glorified through the cross work of Christ? What does it mean to be glorified? That's a big topic, isn't it? What we have before us this Saturday, a display, maybe the grandest display in human history of human glory, the coronation of a king in one of the preeminent nations in our world, televised on every nation in the planet probably in our world, a display of, of the wealth and the prominence and the preeminence of one family over all others, one man over all other men, crowned with a crown of of glory and diadems and jewels to set him apart from all others as though he has some unique position in the world and some unique power over the world. And the whole ceremony is designed, if you watch any of it, to magnify the glory of this moment and of this person and of this position. So that is, in a much more eternally significant and glorious way, what God is doing through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is putting on display through this work at every turn his uniqueness, his preeminence, the wealth of the riches of his grace, the abundance of his mercy, the glory of his character. So how is it that God glorifies himself through his son going to the cross? There's three quick ideas for you. It's through the display of his perfections. It's through the display of of his perfections. Romans 3 talks about this, where Paul is wrestling with the reality of the gospel of grace and how is it that God could look over sins for so long. And he says, Jesus is the, the propitiation of the wrath of God so that through Jesus, God is proven to be just and the justifier of all who believe in him. That's the perfections of God on display in the cross of Christ. We could talk about his mercy. We could talk about his holiness. We could talk about his transcendence. We could talk about his, his condescension, his, his incarnation work as displays of his perfections. All of those are brightly shown through the cross of Jesus. Second, his glory is shown through the keeping of his promises. It is at the cross that we see all the promises of God come together and find their yes and amen in Christ. It's through his resurrection and through his ascension to the right hand of the Father that we are sure Jesus is the one through whom God intends to keep every promise he's ever spoken. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God find there, do you remember? Yes and amen in him. Jesus is the crux of the keeping of the promises of of God And God is glorified that he has said something and that he does what he said. That he's a God of his word and hasn't ever let one of them fall to the ground. And we see that all throughout human history, all throughout Revelation history, we see that especially in a climactic way, in redemptive history, in Jesus' death, burial, 
and resurrection. Third way, the glory of God is seen through the cross work of Christ is through the redemption of his people. Through the redemption of his people, the finishing of his work to make these people his own by paying their sin debt on the cross. Which is why Paul, after writing the glorious exposition of the gospel in Romans 1 through 11, diving into every crevice and nuance of gospel truth Paul by the Spirit could think of. He comes to the end of that exposition and he says in chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What compels Paul to explode in that kind of worship? Because God kept his promise and completed redemption of his people and made them his own. And Paul rejoices in God for what he has done. Indeed, Jesus is this unique man accomplishing this unique mission. As part of this unique mission, he now has a unique mediation. He now mediates in a unique way between us and God. No one else, as I've said, can pray what Jesus prays in John 17. And it really is humanly impossible to imagine the depth of longing that Jesus has here for the finishing of his mission and for a return to his glory. If you've traveled before, even just outside of your own town, but more than that, if you traveled internationally, you know the experience of on that trip, enjoying what you're doing and having fun, and then at some point it just hits you, like, I really wish I was home. Like, this is fun and cool and good and all, but I really just want to go home. I want to be with my people in my place where I'm most comfortable. And that is a small comparison to what Jesus must have experienced in this moment. On, dare I say it, an infinite level. Leaving the holiness and sinlessness of the presence of the Godhead in heaven in eternity past. He, the creator, took upon himself creation, humbled himself to come into this world as a man to be our redeemer. He who has authority over all things became slave of all to serve all. He now longs to return to the glories of heaven. And so he prays and asks the Father to finish this work through him, to glorify himself through the glory of the Son and the finished work of redemption. I'm finishing here. Listen, it is really instructive for us that Jesus knows the will of the Father and is committed to do the will of the Father. He hasn't buckled on any one point up to this point, correct? There's no wavering in him here. He knows what God wants him to do. He knows that he's going to do it. And it is here in this moment that we have the longest prayer recorded in his life and ministry. I don't say it's the longest prayer he ever prayed. He prayed all night, Mark told us. But the longest one recorded for our own edification is at this moment where Jesus knows what he's supposed to do and is committed to doing it. He now prayerfully depends on the Father to accomplish this work. The finish line is in sight. He's taking one step after the other and he pleads with the Father to finish 
the mission. Glorify the Son, that you, Father, are glorified through me. I think we can rightly conclude that it is because Jesus knows the mind and the will of his Father that he is compelled to pray. Is that a fair conclusion in your mind? Because Jesus knows the will of the Father, he's compelled to pray? So doesn't this help us think about how we should pray? And, and we play tricks, we play games spiritually here, don't we? Because I know the will of the Father, I just need to go do it. I need to pray about the things that I'm not sure what's going on there. Certainly do. But we focus our prayers there. Jesus' prayer is focused in this moment upon what he knows the will of God is for him. And he shows us, I think, the better way for our praying. Instead of consuming our prayers with all the things that we wish were different or wish were changed or wish were accomplished in a different way, we ought pray in light of what we know God wants us to do in light of all the things we can't change. And ask him, like Jesus does, to help us glorify him through our obedience. Now, we never ought pray, glorify me so that I might glorify you. You cannot pray that. Only Jesus can pray that. But you ought pray, glorify yourself as I seek to obey you, to do what you've called me to do. To put it in the negative, can we say that laziness in and lack of prayerfulness is the fruit of a heart which does not know or does not care about God's will. If you're not praying, it's because in, in that part of your life you have stopped caring or, or you don't know what God's will is about that thing, how he wants you to act in it, and so you don't pray about it. If you know God's will, which is clearly revealed right here in his word, and you know that the God of that will, you will be a man or woman of prayer in light of that. Secondly, because Jesus was committed to the will of the Father, he was compelled to pray. So he knew the will of the Father, he was compelled to pray. He was committed to the will of the Father, he was compelled to pray. I know it's the same coin, I'm just flipping it over, making you look at it again. His knowledge of God's will made him beseech his Father, and his obedient submission to that will made him beseech the Father. So he's praying for God to bring about his ultimate glory through his obedience. And he knows that the answer to that prayer is going to require whose obedience? Jesus' obedience, right? So he's praying, committed to doing what God the Father has told him to do, and he's compelled to pray. So bring this to your life. You're not Jesus, but you should learn to pray from him. Our prayers are compelled by a heart that is humbly submitted to the one to whom we pray. So much of my prayer life are wasted requests flowing out of a heart lacking submission. Those are those wrestling kinds of prayers where you are asking God to, to make something different happen for you. And, and you're not focused on how it is that God wants you to operate in faithfulness through what he's entrusted to you. And of course, it's okay to ask him to take away the thorn out of your flesh. Paul did. Ask him. Ask him again and ask him again. But as you do, do it out of humble submission to his will. And, and if he does not take the thorn out of your flesh, be confident that he will help you 
obey him faithfully through it, and he will ultimately receive glory from it. Brothers and sisters, our requests in prayer are best formed in the forge of obedience, hammered out on the the anvil of our will, heated up through the pressure of affliction. Our best praying is in that moment when we're committed to doing whatever it is God wants us to do in this moment for his glory. And we pray to him and say, Lord, help me obey. And when we don't pray well, we know we are not committed to doing God's will. Those lack of prayer moments are moments of great pride in which we want what we want, not what God wants. And we pray either according to our own lusts, and we'll never get those, James 4 tells us. Or we pray that God will do something other than what he's intended to do. But when you're committed to the will of God as Jesus was, you can't help but pray. So beloved, as we close, let us rejoice in such a Savior who in this unique moment, sent on this unique mission, as God's unique man, prays this unique prayer knowing that he prays in this moment ongoing for you so that you would be delivered safely home. All praise to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your work in our hearts through this, your word. We pray that you would teach and instruct us and grow us in grace and the knowledge of you through your son. Pray for those among us who don't yet know Christ, who've heard of him and heard of him and know facts about him but don't yet know him. Father, please bring them to saving faith for your glory. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.